0: This episode of Talking Home Renovations is sponsored by BQE, the makers of BQE Core. BQE Core is a software that makes it easy to manage your project and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. You are listening to Talking Home Renovations with a House Maven. Is it time to renovate your house? But you're worried that you don't really know what you're doing, this is an educational and entertaining podcast that will ease your fears. Or maybe you just love hearing about home renovations like I do. I am your host, Catherine McPhail. I am an architect. I practice in eastern Massachusetts. On the show, I interview other architects, vendors, contractors, and homeowners to gather tips and stories about home renovations. You learn about materials, systems, sustainable practices, what to expect, what to avoid, and how to make the most of the money that you'll spend on your renovation. My guest this week is Neil Pan, an architect and podcaster from California. Neil and I met when I was a guest on his podcast inside the Apple Studio, where he talks to architects about how they use Apple products. Neil and I got to talking about this podcast, about my podcast, And he told me that he'd been through a significant renovation at his own house. In this conversation, we we talked about the role of trust, being your own architect, the impact of the renovation cost over the life of the loan. Here is our conversation. Welcome to the show, Neil.
1: Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate you having me on.
0: And you are going to be talking about a uh, a project you were involved with. Is this in a house that you still live in, or did you? Yes,
1: yes, it is. And that's that's part of the story here is that it started as a smaller house, about nine hundred and about nine hundred square feet. It was a two bedroom, one bath house. I bought on my own before I met my wife, and then about a year, less than a year later, I met her, and then within a couple of years, we got married and within a couple of years we had our first child and a two bedroom one bath house was fine at the time but we knew we were going to have another child and started thinking about what we could do to uh, improve our living situation because we had a about a 15 by 18 living space and that was about it you know and then mm. two 10 by 10 bedrooms give or take and a single car garage And where the washer dryer, you know, of course was out in the garage, which was, which was fine. It all worked really well when we had only one child. Right. Uh, But even though, or then when we had our second child, we, we really had to move forward with getting some more space. I mean, the two kids could have shared a space and uh, we did actually turn one of the bedrooms into my son's bedroom and moved our desk out into the living space. So we had a dining table, a hutch, a desk, um, yeah. you know, the TV entertainment center, the couch, all in this little 15 by 18 or 15 by 17 space. Mm. And uh, we were really, you know, climbing all over each other. Uh, and and so we started the process in designing, you know, something to to do. And I had come up with an idea of, really kind of converting our garage into a master bedroom and bathroom, maybe adding a small little uh, room off the back of the house where it could be a, a laundry space and then a detached garage. Mm-hmm. And so that was one option. And I I didn't actually draw that one, that one up. I, I kind of sketched it up, had an idea. But at the end of the day, we would have ended up, and that would have included a kitchen remodel. But our kitchen was, I don't know, maybe... 10 by 12 and you know it was a small space not really wide enough to have like a dining space in it Mm -hmm. and so we still would have ended up with you know three bedrooms each kid having a bedroom but no real space to have like uh, a desk anywhere Mm -hmm. we would have ended up with really the same exact living space that we had at the time yeah And so for that amount of money, and I didn't quite cost out exactly how much that particular remodel would have been, uh, but it certainly would have been far less than what we ended up with. And, but at the end of the day, it was like, we go through all this trouble and we end up with the same living space that we have right now. Is that really an effective or a good solution for us as, as a family? I mean, we the goal here was to have a space that we could all live in and raise our 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 kids in. Right. So we looked at it and said, "Well, you know, what other what else can we do? We need more space." And the particular lot that I'm on, it's it's fifty fifty six and a quarter feet. Uh, there's, a, there's a little story behind why it's an odd uh, width there. Mm-hmm. It was previously a, another lot was subdivided and split and and anyway, so. Uh, and, and 100 feet deep. But the footprint of the existing house, the idea I had was that we, you know, we're going to stay within that footprint because we really can't expand. We can't go anywhere to the left or the right due to our setbacks. We can't go any far forward. We're actually very close to the back of the sidewalk already. Uh, I think we're like 12 or 15 feet to the back of the sidewalk. So it's, it's, the house is already too close.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, while we have some room in the back, Uh, That, you know, once you put your garage in there and you got to be able to get out of your garage without without hitting the back of your house, uh, you know, that that kind of uh, said we really can't go any further back. And then one of the things we tried to do to save some money was, well, if we keep it on the same footprint, we can essentially keep the same foundation, a lot of the same floor framing. Uh, We did end up, the house was originally built in 1950, so we did uh, keep all the original framing. We did tear up the uh, slatted floor because we had to uh, chop it up so much to put in some additional uh, foundation work Mm -hmm. that it wasn't worth keeping, unfortunately. So we put new plywood down over the existing floor framing. And then we did have to build up the foundation around the one single car garage area. So that that was uh, some new foundation work there. Mm -hmm. But what we ended up doing is actually adding a whole second floor uh, because... There was, a, the, I think the footprint here is maybe 30 by 33 feet. Mm-hmm. So there, there really wasn't a lot of room to do much on a first floor without going up.
0: Right. That Makes sense. Yeah.
1: So we went up and we ended up at the end of the day with a house that was, uh, or is, uh, about 2,481 square feet, give okay. or take. And so, size. yeah, it's a, it's a good size house. And we ended up with, uh, th- what, four, technically four bedrooms. Uh, we have, I have a 15 by 18 office oh, in the house.
0: Nice. That's just as like well. your old space. That's like your old living space.
1: That's why. Yeah, it's pretty much, it's actually in the exact same spot where my master bedroom was in the original house. Yeah. <laughs> so, or what I, what I used as the master bedroom, um, it's in the back of the house instead of in the front towards the street. Um, and then we ended up with uh, the fourth bedroom being downstairs uh, in the front of the house, which we use mainly as a, a workout room. We have a treadmill and my wife's Pilates machine and some weights and uh, stuff like that is is kind of in there. It, originally, it was like a guest room or a playroom for the kids. Yeah. And then it's, it's evolved over time, its use. But it has a closet and I did design... You know, the I would say one of the things to think about when you're doing any sort of remodel is how these spaces evolve over time. And, you know, we used that front bedroom as a as a guest space. My wife's old futon was in there for a while, and the kids could sit on it, watch TV as a playroom, but it could be used as a guest space. You know, we fold out the futon, people could sleep, and they did. You know, we had guests over from out of town, they would just stay there. And you know, so that that use of that room changed over time, but when I designed the office, I also designed it in a way that I could eventually add a closet to it. Mm. So the windows are spaced in a in a in a uh, in a way that literally a closet could be added to this room, and the house could easily be a five bedroom house. Okay, because there's a bathroom between the the two bedrooms or the office and the bedroom downstairs.
2: That's good so,
1: idea. Yeah. So you know, and then we. We looked at it, and you know, talking about uh, how do you utilize space. So we ended up, you know, when I designed it, is the house originally had the the bedroom or the the living space in the front. It was a nineteen fifties house, so the, you know, you walk in the front door, you're in the living room. It's right up against the street. And so when I first designed the house, I kind of had the same idea. It's like, okay, come in the front door. There's the living space in the front. You know, the kitchen was already in the back. Uh, you know, and it would just kind of stay there, get remodeled, enlarged, and then uh, expand and have a dining space next to it. And I showed it to a friend of mine, a colleague I worked with, a designer at the f- a firm I worked with at the time. And he said, have you thought about maybe flipping those two? I know you live on a busy street and the, the street I live on is, is has a, a fair bit of traffic sometimes. And it can be noisy towards the front. And I thought, no, I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Let me go back to the drawing board. So I did, looked at flipping those two, essentially combining the kitchen and the family space into kind of a, a great room concept. I mean, it's not a, a super big space, but the mm-hmm. two of them put together is open with the kitchen island and, um, you know, and then shifting the dining space into the front. So that eventually, or, or essentially what ends up happening is that you, all of our living space and time spent in the house for the most part is in the back. Mm. so even when there's cars going by or something, you don't really hear it because yeah. you have the the front door, the stairs, and then the living space mm-hmm. And so you have this natural sound barrier that you know kind of gives you a, a, a bit more quiet. So thinking about your surroundings when you're designing uh, you know or, or remodeling, it's like you can shift spaces around yeah. And, and really kind of think about how that'll improve your, your living
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, as you do it. So yeah. one of the consequence of moving this dining space into the front was that it was really wider than I needed. Mm. But one of the interesting things is my wife and I both being architects, we have a lot of books.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and we had uh, a number of bookcases in the old house uh, that was all in that same little tiny space uh, with the with the dining table and the desk and the couch and the TV and everything. And I thought to myself, where am I going to put all these books? And I have this extra space in the dining room. What if I do built-in bookcases hmm. that flank each side of the dining room? And so that's what I ended up doing, nice. is doing built-in bookcases. And there's a real funny story behind that is because these bookcases are, are the spaces really, um, what I ended up doing is I had an over nine foot clear spanning space. And I was like, how am I going to build a bookcase or build something into the wall? Because I didn't want any, any supports. I wanted these things to clear span over Hmm. nine feet, almost 10 feet long with no supports in between and yet support books that'll be just stacked, you know, right next to each other, all, all up on top of each other. Yeah. Quite a bit of weight. Yeah. So I had an idea and I said, well, what if I, and and I won't say this is my best idea ever, Mm -hmm. uh, because it, it ended up being a lot of work and, you know, ultimately if you look close enough, uh, it's really not, um, probably not as nice as I, I wanted it to turn out.
2: Okay. But I
1: ended up using, um, what was it, one and three quarters by 14 or one and three quarters by 16 uh, framing members. They were basically, you know, floor joists and I turned them on their side and then ended up having custom made uh, steel rods uh, and, and steel plates that were bolted to the walls and then the steel rods were inserted into the, uh, the framing members on their side to support them and the only problem was that the, the material itself, the wood was pretty rough. So I spent a lot of time on my own, sanding, puttying, mm. sanding again, yeah. and you know trying to make these really rough members as smooth as possible. And mm. I, I probably didn't choose the right, the best material for that. Um, and, but if I was to go back, I'd probably wanna do a little bit more research or buy something that had a, a nicer finish on it to yeah. start with.
0: Or did it work but in the end
1: in the end it's worked it's been 14 years those those shelves uh have been stacked with books for all this time and mm-hmm. there's been absolutely no deflection at all
0: wow well great i'd love to see a photo of that if you have one.
1: I do. Actually, a friend of mine is a photographer and an architect as well. And he ended up using, he took some photos of my house, which I'll, I'll share with you. Yeah. And uh, ended up having a, that one shot of the dining room published. Oh, uh, wow. Actually. Well, so, so it couldn't have uh, been,
0: it couldn't have been, it must have been quite something then. I mean, it might not have been exactly the way you wanted it.
1: Yeah, but well, it, it did end up turning exactly, I think the, the detailing of it could have been a little better. Hmm. Uh, but I think one of the challenges when you're doing any sort of remodel is there's so many things that come up unexpectedly and you have to make quick decisions. And mm-hmm. sometimes you really don't have the time to invest and research a product or find a product uh, that you can use. And I think the over time, the remodel market has certainly become larger than it was 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the availability of materials and other things, uh, you know, I mean, house has happened since then. And, you know, there's just so many more resources and availability of materials and products that didn't exist 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I think that uh, that helps the situation today. Uh, much more so than than there was uh, back then. And so I was kind of winging it.
0: In your practice, did you design houses? Was that your specialty or was it your wife's specialty?
1: In my practice, up until that point, I had worked mostly in the home building industry. Oh, okay. Uh, the firms I had worked for, and then actually while I was doing my house, I was actually working for a developer at mm. the time uh, that built and uh, owned and operated uh, apartments and single family residences. Okay. And that was mostly uh, my experience. My wife, uh, as an architect, she spent most of her career and still has more in the industrial uh, and world. So uh, house uh, stuff, residential work wasn't her background. Okay, um, But what helped us was that her background in the commercial and industrial world was picking materials, and things like that and so as a pair we we worked really well together because that was not at, working in the home building industry usually the home builders purchasing department you know and design departments to you know chose a lot of the materials uh, and fixtures and things like that that went into the houses that we designed mm. and so we were kind of more big picture here's a house and here's how you build it and you know creating spaces but then really kind of decorating those spaces or choosing the materials the tile the the materials that went in was more their purview and so my wife was really helpful in picking up that ball uh that i didn't really have a good background in and and doing that
0: did you hire a contractor or did you contract it out yourself
1: well that's where things get a little more painful and i think there's some lessons learned here for anyone who's listening. Hmm. So, as I mentioned, I was working for a developer at the time and this we started this right around the time of the the great recession. And uh, not a great timing, of course. Um, but actually that we started just before everything blew up in 2007. And so while we were in the process of building this house, everything blew up hmm. uh, and or, or right, real early in this process. So, I ended up hiring a, a person I used to work with um, at the at the developer, and we were both. Uh, well, see, I was still working for them. He wasn't, uh, but he, you know, did did this kind of stuff and had some background in it, and I trusted him, and that's probably my first mistake, but. Uh, so we did hire somebody to help kind of manage the process. Mm. And I wouldn't say that that was successful.
2: Yeah. In
1: fact, it was a complete disaster. Uh, and I ended up finishing the project mm. uh, after he was let go. Yeah. So um, what I would caution anyone who's listening uh, is that uh, be careful. You know, I mean, hire somebody, and even if you think you can trust them, uh, I wouldn't say don't, hmm. but be be wary and always be cautious. I mean, we had a lot of ex- poor experiences with contractors uh, on the project. Uh, we had a tile guy who was good um, and did some good work, but you know, got to a point where uh, we there was a a mess up on on an order uh, of the amount of tile. And so we were short and so he couldn't finish one of the bathrooms and he ended up quitting Mm. and we had an unfinished bathroom, you know? So what I'd really caution people that the things that I didn't know or didn't learn is I, I trusted people way too much. And you know, when it came to contracts and who's responsible for what, uh, and when to pay, when not to pay, those were all lessons. Even though I was an architect and been practicing for, gosh, almost fifteen years, by then, um, I hadn't really done the work like this myself. You know, I've worked for firms um, and developers, so this was not really my my experience.
0: You mean like hiring and, the subs directly? Yes. Or, you know, like yeah, hiring
1: subs or just being aware of the process. You know, of how that all works, what the general really does on the site, what the subs are really doing, who's responsible for what. And I really learned that uh, you have to pay very close attention and and have a clear understanding of who's doing what for what price and when they're getting paid. Mm. Um, Because I prepaid on some things and then had people leave the job.
0: Yeah, I've had that too. If that makes you feel any better. I prepaid a (laughs) painter and um, surprisingly he never, I trusted him too. He gave me fish. I mean, he seemed like a guy who was, um, I just trusted him. So I paid him the rest and he never came back. Yeah. Same with my window guy. So two people I can think of right off the top of my head that didn't work out. So it it happens, but that's a good piece of advice. Don't prepay for the whole thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, really don't, don't, Prepay. I mean, at most you do 10% to get somebody started and Mm -hmm. you don't pay another dime until things are done. Uh, But but if you're not sure, have that in the contract. You know, I found that I was used to doing contracts with uh, consultants and even with other architects when I was working on the developer side. Um, And I, I felt pretty comfortable with that. But dealing with these subs, uh, their contracts, I found that they're good at what they do. You know, if they're a tile person or a flooring person or a painter, they're good with that. Uh, contract side,
0: they're yeah. not so good with that. True, that is a different, that's a different thing altogether. The business yeah. side of any business, yeah.
1: So I would just caution, be very cautious uh, about, about what you're doing and who you're doing it with. Um, because they're not your friend. Right. And I, I I shouldn't I mean I'm I'm being a little facetious here. It just that the, you know, you just have to be very, very careful because as you mentioned, you know, people just don't show up. I had people leave my job as well and take the money and run.
2: Mm-hmm. And you
1: and there was no recourse. And I mean, in some cases we're talking thousands of dollars. And if you think about, you know, to think about it, you that's that's a lot of money, you know. A couple thousand dollars is, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it, it's a lot of money.
0: Yeah, it is a lot of money. It starts to feel like not that much money when you keep paying a thousand, two, two thousand, ten thousand, whatever. But still, right, two thousand is a lot of money. If I look at it, sure. I was looking at a chair today. And it was sixteen hundred dollars. Like, well, that's kind of a lot of money. Yeah. But on the other hand, we just bought a house, so relatively speaking, it's not that. But you know, you forget. But it is a lot of money. Sure. Well, sure,
1: when you're dealing with a remodel that could get into, you know, easily six figures, well into the six figures, um, Mm. you know, a couple thousand dollars here or there doesn't seem like a lot, uh, but it really does add up.
0: And now a word from our sponsor. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Teeger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and is brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. Now back to our conversation. And
1: I think that was the other thing that really kind of shocked us during the whole process Mm. was that it, you know, oh, well, it's just a little bit here and a little bit there. It's like death by a thousand cuts. And pretty soon, you know, uh, I don't remember what we spent on this exactly. I'm actually embarrassed to even think about it, but um, it was a lot. And I think the one thing I would say to people listening is really, you know, think about how much you're spending and what you're really getting out of it. So in our case, we were building a house that we were going to live in and, you know, probably die in eventually uh, that I wasn't going to go anywhere. You know, now I've had clients when I was working on my own that were doing remodels and they ended up, you know, somebody got a better job out of state and they moved like six months later after they finished. Right. And so, you know, the decisions that they made or I mean, not at the time, but certainly, you know, a lot of decisions and many clients of mine, when I was doing remodels for other people, when I worked on my own, you know, they, their mind was always thinking, well, what's the resale value? How important is that uh, to the next buyer? And I, I kind of always argued a little bit with those clients. It's like, well, what are you doing this for? Are you doing it for you or for the next person?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and, and there's, it, there's legitimate uh, questions about that. I mean, if they're if they are going to be moving out of state at some point or uh, away, or this isn't their last house, then absolutely make different decisions about what you're doing. Don't put in that you know super expensive uh, range or something. You know, buy something more moderate mm-hmm. that'll meet your needs, um, but what doesn't cost a fortune. Because you know, all of these costs added up over time, they all pile into a larger mortgage.
2: Yeah.
1: Which you know means a larger mortgage payment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know that those are costs that at the time, and this is probably something that as a takeaway for me was something I I, I didn't consider because you know this was 15 years ago and wasn't thinking that what I was thinking was this was a place I was gonna stay in. But I didn't consider what that meant to what I could do 10 or 15 years from then. Mm. And what I mean by that is that by making specific choices, maybe buying the higher end fixtures, buying the higher end materials, or whatever it might be, adding a whole second floor, (laughs) in my case, (laughs) uh, has financial ramifications for your future. Uh, in that you're paying a large larger mortgage payment. So instead of being able to go on that summer vacation, you know, that your friends are going on, mm-hmm. um, you know you you have a much higher house payment yeah. that you have to pay, and you don't have those funds available mm-hmm. to do those types of things. And so I would say to anyone who's considering a remodel or doing one is how 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 are you going to be affected? In your day-to-day life, obviously, you're going to have a new kitchen. You're going to have a new living space, and there and there is uh, a lot of value to that. Uh, but you have to balance that against what is the value of what that's going to mean to me financially. Um, you know, at the at the time we started this, we started with a budget, and we both had good jobs, and everything was great. And during the remodel process, I got laid off.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean,
1: we we didn't even have a house to move back into yet. Mm -hmm. It wasn't done. And I had lost my job.
0: Oh, no. And
1: then we had the Great Recession.
0: You had two little kids at the time.
1: I had a daughter who was, uh, her first almost uh, probably 10 months of her life were spent in an apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe eight. No, it took us nine months. So nine months of her first year was spent in an apartment. As Because we had to move out because we took this one down to the floor
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and rebuilt it. So, uh, you know, yeah. So we had two kids and, you know, my wife was getting a pay cut and I I lost my job. So it's really kind of incredible that we ended up being able to finish this house and have been able to keep it. Mm-hmm. Because there were some definitely some times there where we weren't, weren't really sure if we could afford to
2: keep it.
0: Yeah. I know that feeling too. Yeah. It does all add up and it it goes from before, you know, it, it is like $5,000 a month for the various home equity things to fix everything. And then you have to work a certain amount to cover that. And it does affect my whole, you know, there it does, it does kind of a domino effect.
1: Yeah. And I think that's something to that people, when they, they look at the idea of, well, I'm going to remodel or add on to my house, um, that certainly needs to be something to be thought of. What is this really going to cost? Can I afford it? What mm-hmm. does it mean to my long-term financial financial uh, affordability? Uh, you know, if you're some people, like I know I have a, a a couple of friends, they they love to travel. They travel a lot. And, um, you know, they, they can afford to do that. And um, they're in a completely different financial situation um, and part of their lives. So, but... When they look at, oh, okay, we're going to do something to our house, which they have, they've, they've remodeled their kitchen and stuff, but you know, they've been more moderate about it and just kind of to fix things up a little bit, but know that, you know, a big chunk of their budget is for travel and not to live in a place. Mm -hmm. So, um, at the end of the day though, what's been really interesting is we get to, you know, uh, a decade or so later and COVID hits, Mm. And suddenly we can't leave our house. Right. And yet here we are in this house of ours that now suddenly can accommodate me in my office, you know, working uh, from this space virtually the the past two years. My wife loves to stand while she works. So we have a kitchen island. And so she was set up there in the kitchen island uh, and in that space. And each kid had their own room. So they weren't sharing a room. They could be on their audio and video for school, Mm. and they had their own rooms. And so all four of us could basically be in the house, not even see each other all day, Mm -hmm. not interrupt each other. Um, Probably my wife took the brunt of most of that because if any of us wanted to get lunch or something, we certainly had to invade her space in the kitchen for that. Uh, But everybody, you know, you, you, you be quiet, and she didn't have to really... She's not allowed to be on camera for security reasons, what she does. So at least we didn't have to worry about, you know, appearing behind her <laughs> on video or something. right. and so that worked out really well in that, you know, by doing what we did ended up being we we were very lucky that we had a space large enough that at the end of the each day during the you know, heavy lockdown period, we were able to. For the most part, each leave our space, leave work behind. My wife probably was the worst of that because even though her computer was still set up on the kitchen island, you know, at least we could all retreat to the living room, sit on the couch and watch TV or a movie mm-hmm. a movie together or play a game on the coffee table or something together and not kind of be in that same space we were in all day long. Yeah. For work.
0: That's true. Or school. And there's a lot of value to that too.
1: Cause I know some coworkers of mine weren't quite so lucky. You know, they had like a desk with their computer in their room, in their bedroom. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, work seemed to never end. And so for us, we were very fortunate that we had that space. So, you know, yeah. it ended up working out. Um, but I would just say be very cautious about what you do and, and really think about the financial situation of what that's going to cost you. And are you willing to uh, take that on for thirty years, right? Because you're going to mm-hmm. end up refinancing or financing this somehow, yeah. you know, unless you're fortunate enough to have cash and just pay for it all up front. Yeah, that's but different. Most in of that us, case. Can't, most of us can't do that. Right. So.
0: Right. Well, is there any any other lesson you'd like to share with people? I mean, that is a big. Those are big ones, right there. which you already gave us. So.
1: Um, you know, I think there's, there, there's one other one that comes to mind real quick is that, um, we did something kind of fun. So we have in our master bathroom, we have a freestanding tub and originally I was going to have like a tub with tile around it, kind of a base and all of that. And, uh, you know, what we ended up with was a a freestanding tub, but one of the the interesting aspects about having a freestanding tub in the center of your bath master bathroom is how do you fill it
2: hmm.
1: right how do, how do wh- where is the water coming from and so in my master bathroom there's uh, windows all in front of the the tub uh, the tub is sits perpendicular to the to the windows and they come down pretty low just above the lip of the tub so the idea of trying to put a filler in the wall wasn't an option because the the windows are in the way now i could have been uh, probably smarter about that and had higher windows. Um, but my wife wanted a lot of light. So we have big windows and lots of them. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, how, how do I fill this up? So we started looking at like freestanding uh, fillers that come out of the floor and come up and, and kind of over the top and and do all that. And they were really expensive. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember really the details, but I I know we were looking at maybe fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars for you mm-hmm. know fillers that were all chrome or anodized, you know, whatever. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of money to spend on this. And mm-hmm. you know, we didn't really budget for that. That was you know, that was the other thing is we we kind of had a budget to start with, mm-hmm. you know, but that budget was kind of built around a lot of assumptions because we didn't get in and start picking fixtures or exact uh, materials until we had already started, Mm. you know, so we kind of had some rough budget numbers for these things, but they were probably way below, you know, that was kind of like, If you go to Home Depot and you find the $50 fixture, that's probably what was in our initial budget, Yeah, you know, but we had more expensive taste and we also Mm -hmm. had, uh, um, we also had the idea that we were going to stay here a long time. So, and and we have, we're not going anywhere. So we wanted to have nicer things. And so anyway, looking at it, I was like, well, I was watching a, a home show no idea what it was, but they, they showed a bathroom remodel and they had a filler coming from the ceiling.
2: Mm.
1: And I was like, Oh, Ooh, that's an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. So we looked into that. And I think that fixture cost like 250 bucks.
0: Oh, that's way better.
1: And so, you know, (laughs) out of necessity and to save some money, we came up with this idea of, okay, we're going to put the filler in the ceiling. And the plumber kind of looked at us cross-eyed, like, what the hell? And so we, we had to, the, one of the challenges though, was to work at placing the tub underneath the filler in the most optimal way that it would do the least amount of splashing
2: Right. Yeah. to
1: get all over the floor. So it kind of hits the end of the tub at an angle. Mm. So it, 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 it splashes a little, but very, not a lot. Mm. Uh, but I would say this. So for our $250 roughly investment at the time, there's a lot of wow factor. Yeah. Because as we were showing our friends uh, and and you know other f- family that came in to see the house after it was done, we'd walk into the master bath and we so we'd say, "So how do you think we fill up the tub?" And they'd all look around. Nobody looks up, <laughs> and they're like, "We have no idea because the fill the, the actual knob to, to to turn the water on." is on the back side of the tub on the wall below the windows. Mm. So at least when you're walking in to the to the bathroom, you can't see it. Yeah. And so I would go and crouch over by the by the tub and I'd turn it on and I was showing it to a real estate agent one time who was coming through, I think she was doing maybe the appraisal or something. And uh, or an appraiser came through and she literally screamed and jumped back when the <laughs> when this because she was kind of close to the tub and kind of looking or looking around and suddenly this stream of 1 inch wide column of water just comes down right out of the ceiling mm. and uh you know there's there's a lot of wow factor for that yeah
0: i bet is it what does it look like is it is it um it looks spab- like a,
1: a a chrome donut
0: really so it's just yeah Pretty much it's nothing just a, on the ceiling. It looks like it could be light fixture or something, and then just water. Yes, yeah, that sounds awesome.
1: Yeah, it's like a four-inch round chrome donut with a hole in the middle, a little black hole because that's where the water comes from. Ah. So it's very unassuming, doesn't stand out, um but that's where the water comes.
2: Yeah,
1: it's like that's, a Kohler fixture. That's pretty uh, cool. Most, I like so. that.
2: Good yeah, idea. it was a
1: really fun little design thing that we did. That uh you know, kind of nobody really thinks about it. it's something you don't typically see hmm. but it all came because we didn't have a place to put a filler hmm. we didn't want to spend a couple thousand dollars on something, some elaborate contraption that comes out of the floor
0: yeah and
1: this was very simple and elegant
0: when you see when you see those beautiful tubs and then they have that big filler right next to it, it kind of breaks the like the egg or whatever yes. and then suddenly there's this thing so i guess you know you Probably going to be seeing those in my projects coming up. Neil, Thank <laughs> thanks for the tip.
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely.
0: That is fun. And do you use it? And do you still love it? Do you still feel happy when you see it? Because that's. Um, I nice still.
1: To- I mean, that's something I'm. I'm talking about now. So well, yes, I, I. still, I still love it. it. <laughs> uh, I. I have to admit, I've never taken a bath in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife does, though, occasionally. Uh, you know, not not as much, but there's mm-hmm. definitely those those times. First off we had two young kids yeah. they're they're teenagers now so it's a little easier to take some time on a weekend and you know take a nice bath after a long run or something in the in the morning
0: mm-hmm. on a
1: sunday or something so you know we, we can afford to or she can afford to do that now occasionally yeah. uh, but when you've got two little rugrats running around uh, there's not a lot of time to to take yeah. a leisurely bath that is very true so
0: that's true they do um, look they look great though
1: they do. Yeah. And in this case, it's, it's unassuming and, uh, doesn't really, it's not something gaudy that, you know, is, is kind of breaks up the, the, the flow of the bathroom.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your story, Neil.
1: Sure. Sure. Absolutely. It. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely been, a, a you know, there's there's more parts to this story, um, and maybe some more painful parts, um, because remodels are, are really, they can be very difficult. Yeah. And when you get taken advantage of, it, it, it can really leave a, a bad taste in your mouth mm-hmm. uh, for the industry in general. And so, you know, I'd say that the takeaway here is go in with open eyes and and know that this is going to be uh, a process that you're going to go through. And really, I think that the mistake i I, I don't know if I'd classify it as a mistake, but I was my own architect, mm. which was really good, mm-hmm. but also had a lot of problems because I had blinders. I didn't always have an advocate in my corner. Yeah, And so I would say hiring an architect who's your third party, who's your advocate, who can speak the language and stand up and defend you and not necessarily be the one who's doing it, you know, because when you're so personally involved, Mm -hmm. it can be quite painful Mm -hmm. and you're really lost. And so by having, you know, your architect be your advocate and deal with the contractor and deal with the issues that come up and really kind of run interference for you, you know, is so valuable. And, you know, so when you're hiring an architect, it's much more than you're hiring an architect to do the design, to help you pick the fixtures and and do all of that, but they're really your advocate, so don't skimp on the construction administration phase of your contract. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw so many people I worked with that wanted to hire me, hired me, I'd do a design, and that was the end. Yeah. They'd never talk to me again, and then I'd drive by and see what happened, yeah, and it'd be I like, did. oh, wait, that's not what I did. Uh, Mm -hmm. that's not what I designed, or that's not the vision that I gave you. Mm -hmm. And, and it was because they didn't hire me to do their construction administration. Right. And to be their advocate. Yeah. And so I think a lot of the problems that I experienced was that I was so heavily involved. I couldn't be that separate advocate. So I'd say the main piece of advice is when you hire an architect, you're hiring them not only for their design expertise. But really, kind of to be your advocate to, to help defend you and make sure that that process goes as smoothly as possible.
0: That's true. And it doesn't, in my mind, like you said, everybody I talk to has the same experience that we show up at a project we weren't involved with during construction and it's not what we designed. So, in a way, that's kind of wasting all that money on the design because it doesn't get executed in the way that yeah. we had all discussed for many, many hours. Yeah. So, it just makes sense to protect that investment but also yeah to have somebody there to kind of be a buffer for you i've had so many upset clients that i had to talk to and make feel better and then talk you know try to work things out between the the contractor and the client and um yeah it is nice to have somebody there who can smooth things out in in tough moments
1: yeah uh, it take advantage of that uh, yeah. because that's what you're really you're you're hiring an architect or a designer to do that for you
2: yeah and
1: and don't uh don't ignore that fact because there's a lot of value and you'll you'll ultimately get a better product and have a better time through the experience of of your remodel
0: mm-hmm. good point I like that Neil
1: yeah absolutely thank you Catherine
0: well um do you want to talk about your podcast for a second
1: Sure. So I do another podcast uh, as well. Uh, it's called Inside the Apple Studio where I talk to architects and others in the architectural industry about Apple and how they use their Macs and other Apple products in the use of their, in the business of their practice. So uh, you can find that at appleforarchitects.com. And you can follow that on Twitter as well as Apple for Arc, A-R-C-H. And you can find me as well on Twitter at n p a n n first name last in, or first initial last name on okay. Twitter. So if you're looking to find me, if you want to find out some more about uh, uh, my remodel or some things that uh, that I did in this that we didn't discuss, uh, feel free to reach out.
0: When Neil and I were talking after the recording wrapped up, he brought up a good point, which was that he had initially had prices from contractors who were about an hour and a half or an hour outside of his area. So that means that their prices were lower, but in the end having to commute all that time to and from the job site eroded kind of a sense of goodwill maybe on their part in terms of wanting to come back for a little thing to make it right, that that sort of thing. His advice was to look into local contractors whenever you can. Thanks again to Neil for coming on the show. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Thanks for listening. I hope you subscribe to this podcast. If you don't, please head over to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if you have time to write a review, that would be so helpful. Please contact me for any reason at thehousemaven@talkinghomerenovations.com. at I love to hear from people. This podcast is a member of Gable Media, which is the largest AEC network on the planet. Check out the other content on the network at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. This podcast is a production of my architecture firm, Demios Architects, where we believe architects are for everyone. Until next time, take care.